Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Hagar sat on a rock in the middle of the hot desert, rocking back and forth, back and forth, trying not to cry, but most of all, trying not to hear her son's cry. Finally, Hagar couldn't take it any longer. Finally, with the last bit of energy that she had, she screamed through her dark and her dry and her perched lips. A scream of terror, a scream of anger, a scream directed towards no one, because no one was there to hear her, not even God. God had done nothing for Hagar except to lead her into hope and then throw her out into this unforgiving desert with her son to die. They say that when you are about to die, your whole life flashes in front of you. And Hagar was seeing the scenes of her life come together at this point. Hagar saw the child that she was in Egypt when she was sold into slavery and taken to the home of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah, whom she waited on hand and foot for years and years and years. Old Sarah, barren Sarah, Sarah without child, who argued and cajoled with God to give her children. And then one day, Sarah grabbed her servant's arms, and she pushed her into the tent and said to Abraham, Here, take the slave girl. Make her pregnant. If I can't bear a child with you, she can, but it will be my child. Do you hear that, slave? Hagar nodded. Hagar had no choice. In fact, she had no voice. She could not express her deep feelings of anger and injustice. Her contempt of Sarah grew faster than the baby in her womb. And Sarah felt this contempt growing between the two women, and she lashed right back at Hagar in anger. Abused and battered, Hagar fled into the desert. The desert didn't seem so bad that time. When Hagar prayed, she began to feel an answer. Give Sarah a bit of time to cool down, and then go back, God said. You will bear your child and give him the name Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears you, Hagar. Your child shall grow up and be strong, and you shall hold his children in your arms and on your knees someday. You and Ishmael will be forebears of a kind and gentle people, God said. Hagar returned. But she tried to stay as far away from Sarah as she could, and that worked for quite a while. She tried not to let Ishmael get in the way of Sarah either. Then one day, rumors started flying around the camp. 
They started flying around the tents of the tribe of Abraham and Sarah. Rumors of visitors. Rumors of Sarah and Abraham laughing, laughing loud and long at the ludicrous, ludicrous good news that Sarah would bear a son. Great news, thought Hagar. Great news for everyone, but not for me, and not for Ishmael, now nearly a teenager. While joy and promise went from every tent in Sarah and Abraham's tribe along the, along the path, as Sarah bore a son named Isaac, a son named Laughter, Hagar did not laugh. One day when Sarah walked, into her te- walked out of her tent, she saw the boy Ishmael playing with her little son Isaac, and she grew irate. And she said, get out! I don't want to ever see, set eyes on you again. Hagar, Ishmael, get out! But Abraham interceded. Abraham came over and said, but Sarah... It was you who brought Hagar to me. It was you who said we should have a child together. And now you want to throw them out into the desert? That's not right. That slave woman boy of yours, well, he's old enough to take your place, old man. Old enough, if you die, he could inherit everything. And your son, Isaac, our son, the child God sent to us, would be out with nothing. So get rid of her and her boy right now, Sarah said. How could Abraham choose? How do you choose one son over another? How do you love both of them? How could he send one son out into the desert to die and one son to live and grow and flourish. And so Abraham talked to God. If I send Hagar and Ishmael out to the desert, they will die. God, what should I do? Send them, God replied. I'll take care of it. Now Hagar screamed in the hot desert sun, Can you see my son over there? I put him there, over there, under that bush, because I cannot bear to watch my son die. The child I bore to Abraham so that he could have a son. And now Abraham sent us out here with one lousy skin of water. Not much at all. Well, we're always doing what we're told to do, God. You want us to come out here and die. We came out here, and now we are dying. Is this your idea of a promise, God? Go and hold the boy, a voice said to her. Go and put your arms around the boy. Hagar stumbled over the hot rocks and the thorns and took the long, langy body of her thin boy into her arms. She didn't know at that point if Ishmael was dead or alive because he was so unresponsive 
And she held him close. And she cried. And through her tears, she looked up. And she saw, not far from where she was sitting, a well gushing with water. How was it that she hadn't seen that before? Water. Life-giving water. Again, she cried. She looked towards the well, and the deepest well within her soul, she heard a voice. From you and Ishmael shall come a people, said the voice of God. You will survive. Your son will grow, and he will have a wife, and he will bear you grandchildren, and you will be the leader of a gentle race of people, a race of people who will know the pain that you have known. And then Hagar drank of the water. She drank it deep and knew that even though it would be not through Abraham and Sarah and their race, Hagar and her son Ishmael were loved by God, and they were children of God's promise. This is a difficult story to read. It's a difficult story to hear. And I give thanks to Ralph Milton, who inspired this storytelling of Hagar and Ishmael. It's especially difficult because if we really stop and look at it, it's painful in its dealing with slavery, rape, surrogacy, abandonment, and all-out injustices. When I called the Parish Resource Center early in the week, as I usually do, and asked them to pull some books, I was delighted that Mary Lou Adams was the one with whom I spoke. When I told Mary Lou what my text was, that I wanted her to help find material, I said, it's Genesis 21, you know, the story of Hagar and Ishmael. And she said, oh my goodness, you're preaching on that? And then I loved it when I showed up the next day and she had my books lying out. She had a post-it pad on one of the notes of one of the commentaries and she wrote, I love this line. And I looked at it and the, and the commentary said, I would only preach on this passage if someone made me do it. <laughs> and yet here we are, grappling with this passage, this powerful story wondering what on earth it has to do with us today. You see, if we keep reading, many of us are much more familiar and much more confident and much more comfortable with Genesis 22. That's also a story of Abraham sacrificing or going to sacrifice his son. But this time, it's Isaac. And we know how that story ends. And we can live with that story much more comfortably than we can the chapter before when in many ways Abraham is also sending his son to sacrifice. But for some reason, we don't feel quite as comfortable. In both cases, it's God's commands and trusts in the divine promise that leave the future in the hands of God. And so why do we focus more on the threat to Isaac's life in Genesis 22 than we do to Ishmael's life in Genesis 21. 
why do we focus more on the threat to the insider or to the elected one than we do to the outsider? Well, of course, it has to do with our Judeo-Christian background upon which our Mennonite faith is based. But in our focus on the insider, Isaac, do we ignore our responsibilities to the outsider? How do we respond to the Hagars of this world? How do we respond to the Ishmaels of this world? Our responsibility is not to ignore the Hagar and Ishmael of the Bible, just as our responsibility of persons of the Judeo-Christian faith is not to ignore the outcasts of this world. We are, in fact, called to participate in their lives, to lift them up and hold them fast until wells of water become available to them. And we're also to discern where God's delivering activity may be occurring, to name the events for what they are and to publicly confess them as such to the participants and to all the world. I remember about a year and a half ago when Mennonite Central Committee leaders agreed to meet with the Iranian president on his trip to New York City. Many of us here from East Chestnut Street were involved in that through work at MCC. It received a lot of criticism from a lot of people. How could you dare meet with that man? I know of some churches who have struggled with helping a refugee family of the Islamic faith when they've come here as refugees to the United States, hesitating, wondering, should we really help these people? Is this just promoting a cause that goes against what we practice? And yet the text affirms that God chooses the line, the line of Isaac, not that of Ishmael. And that's a strong claim, and it gives rise to a sharper question for Isaac's descendants than if the treatment had been quite even-handed. What do we do with the Ishmaels of this world? Abraham was chosen so that all families might be blessed through him. As children of Abraham and of Isaac, are we not obligated to share our blessing rather than curse those who are different? As I read this story and realized that as with any text, any historical document, any collection of legends, as the Bible is a conglomeration of all of those, I had to wonder why the author of Genesis even chose to include this story. He could have left it out. He could have left out this part of Ishmael, and it would not have affected so much the Abrahamic line that continued on. Why would this story even matter to the Jewish faith? The story offers us insight into who God is. God is the one who rescues Hagar and, and Ishmael. God is bigger than the Jewish religion. God is bigger than any one religion. And we do indeed have a God who is passionate, who cares for the outcast, and who blesses all people and fulfills promises to God's people. It was only a few generations later 
that the tables were turned. Think about it. It was only a few generations later that the Israelites were being held captive by the Egyptians. And they were the ones who were screaming for their deliverance. They were the ones screaming, God, where are you? Why are you not helping us from this slavery? An ironic twist of events in the story of the Israelites. And this story challenges us. It challenges us with the assumption that God only offers release to the Israelites. We know that that isn't true. The larger issue raised here is that God is still the God of the weak and the oppressed, even if it is an Egyptian being oppressed by an Israelite. My dad was a family physician, a doctor, and he's retired now, but spent many hours in the office dealing with patients. As children, it was a very strict rule that we were not allowed to call dad at the office. If we had a concern or a problem, we would try to reach mom at home. But every once in a while, and of course this was the time before cell phones and air conditioning, we, we would have to call dad on the phone at the office. There was a private line that only the inside people knew. 257-4728. Nobody else knew it. We never gave that number out to anybody except the families of the employees of the doctor's office. And only in a dire need, dire emergency, would we call that number and say, hi, this is Sue Conrad. Can I please speak to my father, Dr. Conrad? As though they wouldn't know. And I would be put on hold. You see, mom and dad taught us that we should never abuse this privilege. We were to honor the other people who also needed to speak and see my father, who in fact were paying to see and speak my father. We had to honor the busyness of the office, and we had to balance them with our needs. And so it was a very rare occasion that we were allowed to dial that private line and talk with our father. Family ties offer privileges, but they also offer give and take. We were required to accept the privilege offered to us by knowing that private number, but we also had to honor the privileges and what those privileges may mean to those around us. Interestingly enough, Dad would never allow himself to be interrupted in the middle of a time with a patient even if it was a son or daughter on the phone. Hold the call until I'm done with my patient. And then he would come out and talk to us. Was Ishmael ever not Abraham's son? Are Abraham or Isaac or we ever not the children of God? Perhaps only in our own minds and attitudes at times. But God maintains privilege with all of God's family. There is just enough truth in the claim of being special that it blinds us at times to the perversion that we so easily introduce into that claim. Certainly, there was some sense of chosenness in the miracle of Isaac's birth. But what is quickly overshadowed in the celebration 
is the responsibility that such a miracle entails. You see, the gift of God was never really for Sarah herself, even though God worked the miracle through her and Abraham. The gift was really for the larger world, the world that would be blessed for generations and generations through the community that would emerge through this child, just as God had promised Abraham. To begin to claim special status for oneself based on the gift of God is radically to misunderstand the nature of the gift. And yet, this tendency is pervasive among God's people. It happened in the Old Testament with people like David, and we encounter it again in the New Testament, even among the disciples, determining who is greatest among them. And we see it in our world today, and perhaps we even see it in our own selves. Sometimes we masquerade it as ones who are defending the faith. But the circles that we draw to protect what we think is ours often, like Sarah's small inner circle, exclude the very ones whom God has committed God's self to defend. And so we end up actually defending against God and what God would like to accomplish in the world rather than helping God. Sometimes it emerges as an attitude of self-righteousness that does not allow us to live out the gift of God in our lives. Sometimes it simply comes out as a negative attitude towards most everyone else who is not like us. And sometimes it actually comes out in outright oppression of others as we justify our own behavior towards them on the grounds that they do not have the same gift as us. To all of these attitudes, in any form in which they emerge, this text speaks a word of condemnation. The recipients of the gift are not called to privilege, but to responsibility. You see, God never ceases to surprise us, and this text is no exception. We would expect God, like he does in, in chapter 22, to, pro- to protect Isaac. But were we surprised when she protected Ishmael in chapter 21? Because of our Judeo-Christian background, We identify so closely with the chosen family that we have a hard time even understanding why God would make this kind of commitment or promise to one who stands outside of the promise. And yet this is a fundamental confession about the nature of God in our world. It's hard to swallow, and many people won't swallow it. In fact, they will choke. But if nothing else, this story shows us that God is a generous God to all people. The story of Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac, is not a story of conflict between us and them, but is it a story between us and another us? And the question remains, 
What will we do with the promise that we have received from God? Will we treat each other as outsiders? Or will we share the promise of blessing to others as God intended, as God intended it to be for all people? Amen.